Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and today we are arriving in the fair land of Belgium. Um, and Dominic, we have had one Belgian on The Rest is History, haven't we? And he is absolutely a fan favourite. Bart Van Loo, author of a sensational book called The Burgundians. Um, and we have got Bart back. Bart, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Dominic and Tom. Nice to be here. Hello, Bart. Lovely to have you. So your book, The Burgundians, for those people who haven't read it, was is an absolute feast of a book. And your appearance on our podcast, if anything, was even better because you talked constantly, as I remember, for 60 minutes. Tom and I <laughs> barely said anything. No, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. But there was one thing at the end of that Burgundian podcast that you were disappointed by, I remember. You said, I haven't talked at all about Flemish art and about Jan van Eyck. So we thought... In this World Cup marathon, as we approach the subject of Belgium, we thought, well, let's do Jan van Eyck with Bart van Loo. But here's the question. Is he Belgian? Is he Belgian? <laughs> yes. Yes. Before I start, I, I want to address myself to historical purists because they would probably argue that Jan van Eyck, the greatest painter in northern, western and central Europe before 1500, it's not a real Belgian since Belgium was created in 1830 and he lived, as far as we know, in the 15th century. Well, here's what I would like to say to them. When we look at the map of Europe at the end of the Middle Ages, we see two main powers on the continent, France and the Holy Roman Empire, let's say Germany to simplify things. And in between, a border that seems to last forever. But then in the course of the 14th and 15th century, we see appear a new state, the Low Countries, the cradle of what later on will become the Netherlands and Belgium, an incredible geopolitical achievement that we owe to the Dukes of Burgundy, uh, who I talked about a year ago in your podcast. And I would like to add this thing, that if the Dukes of Burgundy didn't puzzle together the Low Countries at the end of the Middle Ages, we could never have invented Belgium in 1830. Moreover, if we talk about Jan van Eyck, nobody will think the Netherlands. Everybody will think Flemish primitives and the famous schools of painters in Flanders, Brabant, Hainaut. And on the contrary, when we say Vermeer or Rembrandt, everybody will immediately say the Netherlands, 12 points. And indeed, Van Eyck was born in current Belgium, probably learns his craftsmanship in current Belgium and will make his most known masterpieces in Bruges and Ghent, current Belgium. So I think that in this World Cup of history, I think he can run for Belgium just under two conditions. If we agree that Jan van Eyck can put on the shirt of the Red Devils, we know that the Brana and Azar, they need some help. If he does so, we will carefully see to it that he's also wearing a Burgundian captain's band. Yes. With the yellow and blue colors of Burgundy. And that on the front of his shirt, we'll put the unforgettable logo of the Golden Fleece. Yes. So the Golden Fleece. The Golden Fleece is the order created by the Habsburgs. Is that right? Is it the Habsburgs or the Burgundians? Uh, Burgundians, Dominic. Not the Habsburgs. I think they're Dominic and, and, Dominic and Tom... Eminent historians, I ask you officially, do you agree that under that circumstances, Jan van Eyck 
can run for Belgium. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah, well, it would ruin this episode if <laughs> if we disagreed, wouldn't it? Um, so, 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 Bart, in your in the episode you did for us on the Burgundians, you 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 gave us the image of this spectacularly sophisticated court, um, full of beauty and glamour and gold and great feasts and a lot of dwarves, as I remember. Yes. So Van Eyck, he he becomes the court painter. Is he to to the court of Burgundy? Is 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 that his role? Yes, that's maybe the center of what I want to say. That he will be the the the, the court painter of Philip the Good, and that he later on I will I would like to talk about that. That it, it, even he played a main role in those feasts and those Burgundian banquets. Uh, and, and, but but maybe we can start at the beginning. The yes, beginning, that's uh, beginning maybe beginning. it's an idea because it's it's incredibly difficult to talk about somebody who lived in the 15th century, and maybe it's an idea to just to travel in his footsteps, and that's yes. not easy. Uh, some of my allegations will be hypothetical. We we are no stranger to yeah. hypothetical. We've had some we've, <laughs> we've had, had some a- ludicrous claims made on this podcast before, mainly by Tom actually about <laughs> Costa Rican <laughs> politics. So, Bart, you have complete freedom. Yes, and at the end. Let's say that we will talk about the most emblematic piece of art, the Ghent altar piece, the adoration of the mystic lamp, the apotheosis of medieval art. And maybe before we start, listeners, this is just a tip, is something that could be interesting. From time to time, everybody who's listening, you can pause this podcast and quickly look up the painting I'm talking about. And then you come back to the podcast. I'm going to do that right now. The key thing is, you must come back to the podcast. So. <laughs> I think multitask. Look at it and listen. All right, Bart, off you go. Let's begin at the beginning. Our incredibly gifted painter was born in Mazag. That's the eastern part of current Belgium. And how do we know that? Well, that's quite interesting. In 1435, he's making a portrait of Cardinal Albergati. And what is fascinating, we still have his draft. Made with a silver pen which for 21st century eyes has the moral is the same effect, I think, as a pencil. And on his draft, on his draft, Jan kept a written reminder of the colors he would have to use for certain passages when later on he would begin the real painting. Indications such as as gray with ochre overtones for the hair on Albergati's head or very pale whitish purple for the lips. And so on, um, uh, for, for instance, for the eyes, I, I, I like it a lot. He's, he's, he's talking about a yellowish brown tone around the black of the pupil. And he writes down that there is a bluish glow around the white. And he called the white of the eye itself yellowish. Hmm. And in making the beautiful definitive portrait of 1438, he clearly did not let his own advice go unhealed. And but what? makes it really interesting is by unraveling his scribbled color suggestions from 1435, language historians have concluded that Van Eyck, Eyck, if you pronounce him in the English way, must have spoken a Maasland dialect. And that confirms the theory that the painter was born in Mazaik in today Eastern Belgium. And there is, of course, also his name itself that seems to support this line of reasoning. And that's nice. I like it how, to see how linguistics and art history can make a beautiful couple. But you criticised, or you there was a hint there, that you don't pronounce Van Eyck like we do. Yes, yes. I, I, you say Van Eyck, but he's Van Eyck. Van Eyck. Van Eyck. Van Eyck. All right, Van Eyck. Tom, you do it. Van Eyck. 
that's ridiculous. It's like anyway. if you want to pronounce my name, you say Van Lu. It's it's not nice in English, but it, it, you should say Van Lo. Van Lo. Van Eck, Van Lo. Okay. We, 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 we've educated ourselves and we will try to do better in the future. Yes. Um, <laughs> all right. So he's from, I don't even want to say it actually. Mazdaq. And we know that because of the linguistic analysis. So how does he make his, do we know about his family? Do we know about his social background? All these kinds of things? Yes. We know a little bit. We know his wife because we have the portrait of his wife. He's still in Bruges, Margareta van Eyck. And we know we had a daughter. Um, but we don't know a lot of things. We, we found the address of his studio, his atelier in Bruges. And the rest we know about Van Eyck is thanks to the Burgundian uh, counts, the Burgundian archives, where he's been paid. Or, and it's like that, that we can make a little, we can make ourselves a little idea of what his life uh, should have been. If for what happens next, we don't know for sure, but specialists agree that in all probability, he will complete his craftsmanship in Liège. That's today the most important city in eastern Belgium, just by following the river Meuse, uh, La Meuse, the Maas, to Liège. And some say that he painted the famous, and there you go, listeners, the famous Madonna with Chancellor Roland, 1435, in one of the churches of the city. I want to explain that. In what's, what do we see on this painting? In front, we see the second most powerful man in the duchy, Chancellor Roland, is the prime minister of Philip the Good. He appears in a mink-trimmed gold brocade robe, and he may be kneeling at the prie-dieu, but we see no sense of any humility whatsoever. He's directly, without appealing to a patron saying to mediate, no, he focuses directly on Jesus and Christ, blesses him approvingly from the lap of his holy mother. And in the background, and that's what I want to talk about, we see a beautiful landscape, a kind of fairy tale of landscape with uh, mountains, churches, palaces beside a mighty river. It looks like what you could see when you are in the church tower of St. Bartholomew of Liège. But if you look better, you also see the dome of Utrecht. You see snowy mountaintops. We don't have that in Belgium. So <laughs> it can be Liège alone. And that's right. Van Eyck mixes his memories. He's not only the greatest realist of his time, I will talk about that later on, but he's also a master in sampling faces, landscape, memories. And that makes him really modern, I think. Yeah. And what I want to say also is that in Corona times, locked up in our lockdowns, I try to paint that river, that wonderful city, with my daughter. She was six years old. We are no amateurs, of course, but we had plenty of time, so we tried. Thank you, COVID. Without that virus, <laughs> I would never, but really never, I would have tried to copy Van Eyck. She was six years old, and I told her that if we zoom in on the boats, on that river, uh, in the background of the painting, that we can see that Van Eyck painted little boatmen in it. Knowing that those boats are not even a centimeter tall, it's incredible. And when I zoomed in on the boats and I saw, and she, my daughter, she saw the boatman, she was flabbergasted, as you will be if you do the same thing for her, for my daughter, Van Eyck will always be the painter of those tiny, teeny, tiny boatmen. Oh, how wonderful. How yes. wonderful. And just on the, um, the, the thing of Chancellor Roland, so he's painting a, a great man, a famous man. 
a powerful man. And this is very Renaissance, isn't it? This is the kind of thing that is going on in Italy, that all the various city-states there, the dukes and so on, the doges, are, are, they have court painters to glorify them and to glorify their cities. And is that very consciously what um, the Dukes of Burgundy are doing? Yes, it's, it was started by Philip the Good himself, and everybody is copying it. And so it's, 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 of course, you can say that it, Van Eyck is the last painter of the Middle Ages and he's the first painter yeah. of the Northern Renaissance. And we have to talk about that, the individualism. Um, well, I think it's coming up when we, when we're following his life and, and then we come into a very modern kind of looking at Jan van Eyck. So here's a bridge between medieval art and Renaissance art in much the same way that the Duchy of Burgundy is a bridge between the medieval period and and the you know, the early modern period. Would that be a fair way to characterize his status as an artist? Yes, of course. That that that's completely right. Um, I, I can say it better than you did. The center of Europe of that time being is Burgundy. And on the center of the court of Philip the Good, you have to see... Almost as a pal, a mate, someone is really close to the Duke, you see Jan van Eyck. The first time when we really hear about him is 1425, when suddenly he's working for the Count of Holland in The Hague. And that is interesting because that Count was before the Prince Bishop of Liège. So where is he discovered Jan van Eyck and probably took him with him to The Hague, but not for a long time because he will be transferred to Flanders. I'd like to reconnect with the football cup metaphors and imagery. He's bought by Philip the Good, <laughs> and after long negotiations, he will be transferred transferred to another club. From now on, he will be playing in the Burgundian League of Philip the Good. So this is like promotion to the biggest club in in Europe. It's Real Madrid. It's going. It's a top. Uh, Manchester City, if you want. So Wolverhampton Wanderers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and he's moving to, he's moving to Lille, that is now the north of France, but it, then it is Flanders. Okay. And, um, and the Duke is so enthusiastic about him. He saw his paintings, he heard about him, and he was rich. He was rich as a sheikh in Qatar, so he bought him, and he, he, he could have the, the best painter of his time. And now okay. he's living, yes. So, so what is it about him that makes him the best? What is it that, that makes him so appealing to Philip the Good, that makes him want to have this transfer with presumably a huge transfer fee as well. Well, if we, if you want to talk about that, we, uh, do you want me to say it in just one phrase or do you want me to, to illustrate it with, with, with art? Illustrate it with art, Bart. Educate us. Um, yes. I also want to say that he's, he's, he's now at the court. And I will talk about those, those, what is so special, what is so good about Van Eyck. But what we don't, what we always forget, what we even don't know is that Jan Van Eyck, he was much more than a painter. He was an ambassador. He, he did a lot of things. He traveled for Philip the Good. He made a, a map of the world map for Philip the Good. And that, that's before talking about his, his, his extreme um, art as, 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 as modernizing in, in, in the history of art, is that I want to say, and we, want, we may not forget, that his most important thing was not his paintings at the time being, for us it is, but at the time being, he was working for the Duke and he, he was behind the scenery of all those banquets. Is that the one with the mechanical elephant? 
Yes, for instance, and how the Burgundians dressed hazel grouses in the golden habits, cooked a dozen gigantic eggs in pork bladders. Just one example. They stuffed pork bellies with strings of sausages. So yes. when the pork was thrown to the table, that's what they did, the belly burst open and the sausages spurted onto the table like grandiose rosary beds. Beads. Yeah, that's like the rest is history's Christmas lunch with the production team. <laughs> yes, but next time you think of those banquets, we have to imagine behind this scenery. That is amazing. But also people like Jan van Eyck, artists who came up with the idea of 28 musicians in a gigantic pie, self-moving fake elephants and lots of heroic tapestry and paintings in the background. So if we think of Jan van Eyck, we think of the Ghent altarpiece, but we also should think about those banquets. But he's not just working as a sort of banqueting consultant, is he? He's an ambassador and he's doing secret missions that we don't know about. Is that right? Yes. He, for instance, he went, with, we, we don't really know, but Specialists agree that probably he went to Jerusalem to prepare a crusade for Philip the Good, to gain information for the world map he was droning for Philip the Good, that uh, unfortunately disappeared. And he was also sent to Portugal with other ambassadors um, to negotiate the marriage between Philip the Good and Isabella of Portugal. And when the, the negotiations, they went well, and then he could do his real job, Van Eyck. He made a portrait of Isabella. And then he sent the portrait. Uh, today, we would send a photographer. Philip the Good did better. He sent Jan van Eyck. So, but would he have gone to Italy, do you think? Would he have would, would he been aware of the artistic developments there? We don't have proof of it, but it's, everybody thinks he did. Because he, he, he went to Portugal, he went to France. Why should he have been in, in Italy? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so probably he, he, he would have been there. Should we take a break at this point? And Bart, when we come back, could we look at, at what it is exactly about his art that makes him so revolutionary and radical? Maybe we should talk about self-portrait and portraiture. Yeah. And we should talk about the Ghent altarpiece. Yeah, that's what we'll do. So we'll do that after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking to Bart Van Loo, or I should say Bart Van Loo is really talking at us. Um, I think <laughs> that is... A, I, no, no, <laughs> I say that as a Bart. That is what we want. That is absolutely what we want. I don't want to hear from Tom Holland at all in the next 40 <laughs> minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is. I just want to hear from you. Here's a question for you to kick off. Did Jan van Eyck invent oil painting? Ah, no, it didn't. We know that oil painted existed way before. Um, we have proof that it, it was used by, by other people. But the, the, the craftsmanship of Jan van Eyck, it, it relies down to his control of oil painting. He did introduce improvements to the process, and therefore he can be seen as one of the originators. And now it's, it's a little bit technical, and I'm not that that kind of specialist, but it's interesting to know that what changed is that suddenly painters, they use linseed oil instead of egg yolk as a medium, and that enables painter to impart a far more shimmering quality to their colors than they had ever had done before. And Van Eyck, Van Eyck, is experimenting with adding secatives. That's a chemical melange of metals, which made the oil paint dry more quickly. And then it gives him the possibility, he was able to superimpose transparent layers of paint in an innovative way. And as a result, he succeeded in creating the illusion of real death and in giving more luster to the colors. The blue sky are more luminous than ever. The grass was greener and the gold was no longer the shiny effect that his predecessors had achieved by using gold leaf. His gold looked like real gold. So Bart, part of what makes him revolutionary then is this technical ability he has. He's going down deep into the kind of the chemistry of the paint, coming up with a bit like Leonardo does later, I suppose, but obviously to better effect because his paint hasn't kind of flaked and fallen away. But what about the the way that he's then using this paint? Are there things, aspects about the paintings themselves, the, the, the images that are on the canvas or on the wall or whatever that is radical and new? Yes, of course. I, I would like to talk about two things, portrait and then the Ghent altarpiece. Okay. The portrait, we talked about the portrait of, of Isabella of Portugal, but we also have the portrait of a man in red turban. And that is believed to be the, the, one of the first self-portraits in history, we better say, I think the oldest preserved work of this kind. And talking about portraits, there are several known examples of portraits, and I think Tom can explain it far better than me, but there are a lot of examples of portraits from antiquity. But the practice practically vanished with the emergence of Christianity, which maintained a long and troubled relationship with human representations in general and representations of Christ in particular. And it, was, it wasn't until the 14th century that an art of portraiture developed that was worthy of the name, often used in connection with Marius negotiations of simply to keep uh, dead or imprisoned prince symbolically alive, present. And labeling 
Van Eyck is the grandmaster of portrait is a truth difficult to dispute, but we cannot see him as an artistic extraterrestrial. He's not the E.T. of art history. And often we think about him as the E.T. of art history, as somebody who simply fell out of the sky. And, and that is an exaggeration, uh, even on basis of the f- few available examples. It is obvious that he is following in the footsteps of Burgundian painters such as Malwal and Bruderlam, but he outshone them with his eye for detail, the incidence of light from an unseen source, etc. And look at that man in red turban, and you have to go to the National Gallery in London. You see the hat and the turban stand out in sharp detail while the background is black. Vastly different for the rather flat and stylized faces of Brudelam and Malwal. It's incredible. It's it's still astonishing. It's three-dimensional. I'm looking at it now. It is genuinely, it feels three-dimensional in a way that his predecessors don't at all. His mastery of kind of shadow and texture and... Yeah, I'm not an art critic, so I don't have the vocabulary. <laughs> no, that was really good, Dominic. That was really good. Was, yeah, was yeah. really, but Mark, <laughs> just uh, thinking about another, p- possibly even more famous painting by Van Eyck in the National Gallery in London, which will prob- is probably the painting by him that will be most familiar to British listeners because, because it's in London, is the um, Arnolfini portrait, which yes. shows, a, what, how would you describe it? A kind of a merchant and his wife. So the paintings you've been talking about up till now have been either Van Eyck himself or people from the very upper echelons of society, prime ministers and princesses yes. and whatever. But this presumably is, is a lower social class. But as somebody with a lot of money and who wants to imitate the Duke, wants to imitate Rorlin, and, and that's the kind of thing that is happening. People who have money want themselves on a painting, and that is quite new. And this is something that is really distinctive about the whole of the lowlands, that... that it's this kind of bourgeois rising proto-capitalist society that is the kind of will become the great motor of what becomes capitalism into the 16th and 17th centuries. And the portraits of Arnolfini and uh, Roland and others, they were fully consistent with the greater picture of growing individualism. The fact that the painter was all too eager to warm himself at this gently building bonfire of the vanities, it could be seen also in his so-called self-portrait, but also in the completion of the Arnolfino portrait. When you, see, when you are before that portrait in the National Gallery, you see that right in the middle of that work, he wrote literally, Johannes de Eyck fuit hic. Jan van Eyck was here. And in the mirror, hanging beneath that inscription, we can just make out his own silhouette. Yeah, that's the remarkable thing about it, isn't it? So the art critic Ernst Gombrich, he said that it's one of the great revolutionary works of art. A simple corner of the real world had suddenly been fixed onto a panel as if by magic. For the first time in history, the artist became the perfect eyewitness in the truest sense of the term. And that's what you're, you're saying. He is present in the painting in a way that an artist had never really been present in a painting before. Yes, present. And he is the first artist we know who, who put his name on his panels, on his paintings. He just put his name or a slogan, uh, something like Als ich kann, which means that he completed this work as well as I'm able given my devotion and ability. That's a sardonic quip from an artist who knew perfectly well what he was (laughs) capable of. He wrote his name at the bottom of the frame and also the Ghent altarpiece 
contains a clear reference to Jan van Eyck. Just before we go to the Ghent altarpiece, you said he wasn't E.T., he didn't fall from the sky. So that putting himself into the painting and that sort of sense of a move to I'm not I'm, I'm trying to I'm still groping for my art criticism terminology so so this sort of sense that he is an eyewitness looking at a particular scene and that his individual it's you know it's his individual viewpoint that we are seeing rather than some sort of abstract sort of absolute dehumanized vision is that coming out of the kind of is that a you know is he reflecting a kind of humanism and an individualism of his time, or is that unique to him? No, it, it, it is happening, but he is very, he's the most extravagant example of it. But we also have, for instance, the Dukes of Burgundy, somebody like um, Philip the Bold, the first Duke of Burgundy, he will put a statue of himself at the entrance of his church in Dijon, Chamol. It's completely new. At the monks in Cluny, when they made, uh, Tom uh, will know that better than me, when they when they made a, a statue of of God or or Christ, they were afraid that there was thunder coming from the skies. They were hiding in somewhere where they could hide, but nothing happened. God didn't do anything. So people went on, and then in in at the end of the fourth, in the beginning of the fifteenth century, things are changing. And in what is changing everything everywhere, you could say there's something in the water. We cannot explain it. Maybe Tom can explain it. Van Eyck is on the top of it. He's saying, here I am. I'm, I'm putting my name. Um, and, 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 and that's what's happening now. So he's clearly reflecting the spirit of the age. He's reflecting the, the spirit that is the court of the Burgundian dukes, but also this rising merchant class. However, if we look at the painting that we're going to close with the Ghent altarpiece, this great altarpiece in the church in Ghent. Talk us through that. To what extent is is that? Because this, in a way, does seem to me to be looking backwards at least as much as forwards. I may have that wrong. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast and you are able to call it up on your phone or your whatever, wherever you are, do. But but just for those who can't, but let's. Could you give it a description of the of the altarpiece? No, it's impossible to describe. <laughs> it, it, it's impossible. How could you? The first thing we have to imagine is that this altarpiece is closed. Let's close it. It's closed. And let's imagine we are there in Ghent, in the old church of St. John, which was renamed to St. Bavo Cathedral in the 16th century. We are there. It is 6 May, 1432. And we are there for the installation of the Ghent altarpiece, a masterpiece of European art. Moreover, one of the world's Treasures. We have the David sculpture of Michelangelo. We have the Mona Lisa of Da Vinci. We have the Night Watch of Rembrandt. And we have the Ghent altarpiece. It's a must. An artistic landmark almost beyond comparison. And let's imagine. Philip the Good is there too. With his wife, Isabel of Portugal. And we see also two other people. Very important. Jos Fett and Elizabeth Berlut. We, I have to, to mention them because without them, we wouldn't have had this masterpiece. And they are the person who commissioned and paid for this polyptic altarpiece. They remained childless and there was no one to carry the family name forward. But thanks to this altarpiece, they will go on in history. Even they are sure that exactly 590 years later, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook will learn about <laughs> them on the Rest is History podcast. In short, hey, they yeah. know they can die in peace. 
And we have still before the closed altarpiece, we have also to imagine Jan van Eyck himself prominently in view, somewhere between Jos Fett and Philip the Good, the artist as a bridge builder between the elites of his age. And there we are in the Vat Chapel, in front of the closed altarpiece. We see the back panels and, and, I, I, why is it closed? That is what the faithful, the believers see on normal days. It is only opened on Sundays and holidays. And yes, we are there too. Let's say we are a fly on the shoulders of Commissioner Josfat. And all we can think of is this. If that and his wife, Burlut, wore the same clothes as the portraits made by Van Eyck for the back panels, that is what we are looking at now, they would have sworn that the two of them were standing in front of a mirror. Van Eyck is realistic to the bone. Jos Fett, he can count his double, triple chins and all of his wars. And, of course, I talk about it. This portrait of the, of the patron is also consistent with this greater picture of growing individualism. But let's now open the Ghent altar piece. Let's open it quickly. It's gleaming and shining in the middle. The mystic lamp. Symbolizing the sacrifice of Jesus, of course, but also we see a sheep in the middle of the most magnificent painting Flanders has ever seen. Flanders, who became famously rich, became the Silicon Valley of the end of the late Middle Ages, thanks to the cloth weaving industry, thanks to the wool of English sheep. Jan was not only into religious symbolism when he put the sheep in the center of this painting. And there is more. I imagine that seeing this must have made Philip the Good reach for his chest in an involuntary reflex, seeing a reflection of the golden ram he wore around his neck in the image of the sheep, the emblem of the golden fleece. Isn't that wonderful? Van Eyck puts lots of layers in his work. And of course, I'm not going to give a theological interpretation of the work of we will still be talking tomorrow. But, I mean, that's just one of the many images on the altarpiece, isn't it? I mean, you've got all these biblical characters, you have knights, you have, I don't know, a crowd of worshippers, you have an, somebody playing an organ or something, some musical instrument. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Are there. And, and it is, it is for the, I mean, you should, people should Google it and be looking at it now. It is, it is incredibly realistic, but it is also sumptuous kind of technicolor, I mean, to go to, I've, have you been to Ghent Cathedral, Tom? I have, yes. I mean, when you see it in the flesh, it's an amazing, amazing piece of work. Yes, you talk about Adam, and that reminds me of something. When you see Adam, that's on the back channel, but that's, that's, that's not important. But when you look at him, particularly at his hair, it looks as if we can see, as if we can touch every single hair. But that is not true. Van Eyck, of course, did not paint every single hair, but it gives us the illusion that he did so. And that is the magic of Jan van Eyck. So, Bart, what's going on here? What does all this mean? So it's God, the Virgin, John the Baptist. There's a lot of Holy Spirit action going on. <laughs> <laughs> what else is happening? Yes, but no, but it, that is, it's, it's, it's impossible to talk about it. There are so many details. You could talk about that detail reminds that place in Ghent or in Bruges. That detail, we can, if we can, the angels who are singing, they are, they are looking at the book and you can read what they are singing. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. When you see a, a, a book closed, you see there is a note in it. 
The book is closed, but I imagine that if we could, with some technology, take the, 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 the note in the book, we, we, we could take it out, that we, Jan van Eyck, I'm sure he has written something on it. That is the idea you get when you're in front of, of, of the, the Ghent altarpiece. When it is opened in what? 1432, did you say, Bart? 1332, right? it's, it's 519 years ago. Is that pretty much the peak of Ghent's kind of power and influence? Yes, it, uh, Ghent was big in the 13th century, in the 14th century, in the 15th century. But at that moment being, it's the biggest city uh, in Northern Europe. Of course, there is Paris, but uh, Ghent is it's, it's almost up to 70, maybe 80,000 people. That, that's... That's huge because in 13, yeah. 1350 in Amsterdam, there were, there were only a thousand people in, in, in maybe three, four, five thousand at the moment when the Ghent altarpiece was opened. Everything is happening in Flanders, in Ghent, in Bruges. And that's where, where we see the Duke, where we see the Duchess, where we see Jos Fett and Jan van Eyck in front of this masterpiece. It's a classic example of how the generation of wealth generates art. People become rich. They can afford to pay brilliant artists. And so in a way, this is a monument, not just to a kind of cultural highlight, but an age of, of political and economic power, which of course is what your great book about the Burgundians is all about. Yes, it is. And, and people today, what strikes them when they are before Van Eyck is the, the details, the, the, the realism. Did you know that there's another painting, The Virgin and Child with Canon van der Pijlen, that Einstein as the doctors who studied that painting, that they are able today to diagnose the clergyman's arteriosclerosis. Wow. And, and, and just how fascinated the group of Burgundians must have been in 1432 as they gazed at the Ghent altarpiece. They probably never beheld such flagrant realism before. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's the combination of the sort of theological complexity with the same realism that he's bringing to, you know, men with blue hats or men with red hats or or all the portraits that he has previously been painting. And that, I guess, is something new because people had not attempted to bring realism into sort of religious art because the whole point of religious art was that it wasn't meant to be realistic. So it is because I always ask myself, technically, there, there must have been someone in the 13th century who would have more or less could have done what did Van Eyck. But why did we have to wait till that moment? That is what you're talking about, that are, things are changing. And suddenly with science going on, with the, 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 the growth of individualism, of the ego, and with the lots of money that we have in, in, in Burgundy, in Ghent and Bruges, we can make this kind of art. Just before we go, one last question. When you cheer Belgium on in the World Cup, do you secretly wish that there was a Burgundian team? Ah, ha, ha, ha. Yes, because it would be great. Imagine that we would have a Burgundian team that would that would make the Netherlands and Belgium together. Yeah, I don't know. We would have won three or four World Cups. <laughs> yeah, we Maybe. would have beaten the the, the uh, Argentines in seventy eight. We we would have beaten the, the Spanish. Where was it? Twenty years ago. And imagine, imagine the opening ceremony that he would have designed. <laughs> Van A would have designed loads of elephants. Sausages everywhere. It would have been brilliant. <laughs> You'd have given uh, the Dutch some back, much needed backbone to stop them crumbling in World Cup finals, Bart. That's what you'd have done. Um, yes. Oh, that, that would be great. It would be great. We would be a, a great power in, in Europe. But let's just, um, just before we say goodbye, Jan van Eyck, 
He dies in 1441 in Bruges. And is there a sense then when he dies that Burgundy has lost one of the great figures in European cultural history? Yes, that, that is there because he was an example. There are other great painters coming on. His successor on the Burgundian court is someone like Rogier van der Weyden. And you, you could also do a podcast on him. We would, I think we would be too tempted to call him Roger van der Weyden so that people in England knew who he was. <laughs> How did you say it again? Rogier van der Weyden. <laughs> and that is interesting because he was Roger de le Pasteur. He had a name in French. But because of the Burgundian Flemish court, he translated his name. He translated his name in Dutch. We need more of this linguistic education, Tom. Don't you we think? do. We, yes, we do. And um, there's been a lot of butchering of, um, <laughs> of of languages in the rest of history. And it's good that someone's come on to put to put us right, especially over this um, World Cup uh, sweep. Can I give the last tip to, 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 to the listeners? Of course, you, not everybody can go to Ghent. Not everybody can go to London to see Arnolfini, to the Louvre, to the, for the Madonna with Chancellor Roland, which is in restoration right now. I cannot wait to see the results. And the Ghent altarpiece has been restored, and it's, it's, it's magnificent. When we are now in front of the Ghent altarpiece, we can see it with the eyes of Van Eyck and Philip the Good. It's the same colors as 600 years ago. But what I want to say is there is an incredible solution for this problem. Listen very carefully. I will say this only once. Go to the website closer to Van Eyck. It's a digital project where you can zoom into the minor details of these masterpieces. And yes, you can see the teeny tiny boatman on the right. Madonna painting. And you don't know what you are seeing. It's wonderful. And you can only fall in love with Jan Van Eyck. We have all fallen in love with Jan Van Eyck. As we fell in love with the Court of Burgundy in your previous episode. But thanks so much absolute champion of burgundy <laughs> and of course therefore for belgium thanks very much thanks so much all of you for listening bye-bye bye-bye goodbye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad-free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.